Carson, Carson, oh, Kit Carson. Mountain man and buckskin tan help keep this country free. With buffalo gun and beaver trap, he didn't even have a map. The Rocky Mountains he called home, he only lived just further roam. Carson, Carson, oh, Kit Carson. Mountain man and buckskin tan help keep this country free. This is Our American Stories, and you are listening to Fess Parker singing old Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is one of the most complex characters in American history. We stumbled upon his story in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Creating and Civilizing the American West by Phil Anchitz. And we've done some stories on Volume 1 of his great book. Carson's epic adventure in war and exploration embody the American spirit and its struggle for identity, the good, the bad, that come with the great conquest of the American West. All are summed up in this one man's epic life. And now we're about to bring you the story of Kit Carson, and it's driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and one of America's best storytellers about the American West. The mountain men were responsible for blazing nearly every trail to the Pacific coast, for discovering the natural wonders of the trans-Mississippi West, and for providing the muscle that fueled the fur trade. Yet few gained national recognition. An outstanding exception is Kit Carson, who becomes the most famous mountain man of them all. Kit Carson is portrayed heroically in books and articles, and as a character in movies. He is also the subject of a television series. He is one of those figures who made us proud to be an American and whetted the youthful appetite for grand adventures. Carson is present at the creation, it seems. He has witnessed the dawn of the trans-Mississippi American West in all its vividness and brutality. Place names throughout the West recall Kit Carson. There's Carson Pass and the Carson River in the Sierras. In Nevada, there's Carson Valley and Carson City, the capital of Nevada. There's the military post Fort Carson and the town Kit Carson in Colorado. One of Colorado's highest mountains is Kit Carson Peak in the Sangre de Cristo Range. And in Taos, New Mexico, there's Kit Carson Park. Christopher Houston Carson is born in a log cabin on Christmas Eve, 1809, in Madison County, Kentucky, the same year in the same state in which Abraham Lincoln is born. The 11th in a line of 15 siblings he is nicknamed Kit while still an infant, and the name sticks. When he is two, his Scotch-Irish family picks up and migrates westward to a farm near Boone's Lick, Missouri, home of the Daniel Boone clan. Here's Memphis native Hampton Sides, author of the national bestseller, Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. His family was good friends with the Boone family. They intermarried. These were backwoodsmen. They were rough and ready folks who uh, were in search of opportunity. 
For their own safety, the Carsons and other pioneers at Boone's Wick dwell in a state of perpetual vigilance. They live in sturdy cabins built near forts, and well-armed sentries patrol constantly. All cabins are designed with rifle, loopholes, or firing ports in case of an Indian attack. Everyone knew a family whose child or mother had been carried off by Indians. Kit's sister, Mary, recalls, we would carry bits of red cloth with us to drop if we were captured by Indians so our people could trace us. Despite all this, the young Kit Carson plays with Indian children whose parents come to Boone's Lick to trade goods. From an early age, Kit learns that Indians are not monolithic, that tribes could differ substantially and violently from one another, and that each group must be dealt with separately on its own terms. Kit is not quite nine when his father is killed while felling a tree and the large Carson family is left in desperate straits. Kit drops out of school to work full-time on the family farm and hunts in his spare time to help put meat on the table. At 14 years old, Kit is apprenticed at a saddlery. The teenager hates both the work and the confinement in the saddle shop, but it proves to be a blessing in disguise. Many of the shop's customers are trappers, traders, teamsters, or scouts on the Santa Fe Trail. They're stirring tales of the way west and what lay over the far horizon sets the boy's imagination afire. Here's the executive director of the Western History Association, Paul Hutton. The West offers boundless opportunity, the freedom from all the restraints of family, all the restraints of a shopkeeper's life, and of course, the promise of adventure, of danger, of excitement. And so he runs away. He does a Huck Finn and lights out for the territories. At 16 in August, 1826, Kit turns a boy's adventure into a man's livelihood when he crosses the Missouri border and heads west with a merchant caravan on the newly opened Santa Fe Trail. After 900 miles on the trail, Carson settles in Taos, New Mexico, where he develops fluency in Spanish, French, and a half dozen Indian tongues. And he also masters the universal sign language used by Western tribes. And yet, for all his facility with language, Kit Carson is illiterate. Taos is the capital of the Southwestern fur trade, teeming with trappers, Americans, Frenchmen, Canadians, all of them scruffy and sunburned after months spent trapping in the Rockies. Carson wanted to be a part of this fraternity of men. And these greasy, grizzled, hairy, often drunk, international cast of characters who knew the rivers of the West and had been to all these amazing places. Uh, he wanted to be one of these guys as quickly as they'd have him. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson, his story, here on Our American Stories. 
behind It ought to have been different But you oftentimes will find That the story doesn't always go The way you had in mind And we return to the life of Kit Carson as told and driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Let's pick up where we left off. In 1829, and not yet 20 years old, Carson joins a fur-trapping brigade of 40 mountain men who venture into Arizona, most of which is still untouched by fur trappers. There probably was not a more dangerous profession in America at that time uh, than being a mountain man. There was the danger of grizzly bears, hypothermia, starvation. These men went into trackless wilderness for months at a time, all in pursuit of beaver pelts. But the greatest reason why so few mountain men have ventured into Arizona territory are the Apache. The Apache delight in torturing and killing their enemies, especially the nearby Pima and Papago Indians. In this world, the trapper's best chance at survival is for himself to adapt completely and entirely to the wilderness and to know intimately the Indians and their habits and their warfare. If the mountain men could do that, they survived. If not, they died. The West is where races intersect, cultures intersect, sometimes violently, more often not. Kit Carson moves easily in that world. He's not opposed to confronting people straight on and engaging in combat, taking a scalp if need be, to make a point. But that doesn't mean he couldn't sit down and break bread the very next week. He understood what was expected of him by Native peoples that he came in contact with in terms of peaceful relationships and trade relationships, but also in terms of conflict. And he understood that retribution must follow crime and follow it immediately and harshly if one was to survive in this environment. Every summer, the big fur companies organized what was known as the Mountain Man Rendezvous. And this was held high in the beaver country. It could be in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. As always happens at these gatherings, various bands of Indians come to trade, gamble, and drink with the mountain men. And it's not uncommon for trappers to take squaws for their wives during this month-long festival. One of the most popular women attending the rendezvous of 1835 is a young Arapaho beauty named Singing Grass. She catches Carson's eye. But another man is equally smitten. He's a very large, swaggering, blustering French-Canadian trapper known as the Bully of the Mountains. He's also an expert shot. Singing Grass chooses Carson and rejects the Frenchman. Over the next several days, Frenchman goes on a bender, 
begins to menace anyone who crosses his path. After being ignored by other mountain men, he strolls over to Carson's camp and announces how he particularly enjoys thrashing Americans. Carson springs to his feet and exclaims, I'll rip your damn guts. The Frenchman says nothing but mounts his horse and rides out in front of camp, daring Carson to fight him. Carson quickly jumps on a horse and gallops up to the Frenchman. They stop so close to each other that their horses' heads touch. Both men draw guns and fire at precisely the same moment. The Frenchman's bullet creases Carson's head, taking scalp and hair with it. Carson's bullet goes through the Frenchman's right hand and blows away his thumb, causing him to drop his gun. Carson draws a second pistol and prepares to deliver the coup de grace. Gingerly holding his maimed appendage, the Frenchman begs for his life. Satisfied that he has humiliated him, Carson turns and rides away, says Carson. We won't have any more problems with this bully Frenchman anymore, will we? Singing grass? And Carson marry after Carson offers her father a bride price of five blankets, three mules, and a gun. Carson is 25 years old. Like many of the trappers, Carson settled down with an American Indian woman. He found that this marriage was certainly a marriage of convenience in the sense that he had someone on the trail with him who helped do all the thousand and one tasks that had to be done. But it was the first love of his life. He was devoted to her. After giving birth to their second daughter in 1840, Singing Grass dies of complications. And then shortly later in an accident, the baby dies. She was a good wife to me, Carson tells a friend years later. I never came in from hunting that she didn't have warm water ready for my cold feet. Adding to Kit's pain, America is experiencing intense growing pains. The era of the mountain man is coming to an end. Decades of trapping has destroyed the beaver population, and the once fashionable beaver hat is now being replaced with one made of silk. Every summer throughout the 1840s, there were fewer and fewer beaver pelts. And this was a, a consequence of just how amazingly good these guys were at what they did. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. We trapped down the river, but found no beaver. The country was barren. It became necessary to try our hand at something else. The beaver market collapses, and Carson finds himself out of work, widowed, and shouldering the burdens of parenthood alone. He is 29. With his pockets empty and his future uncertain, Kit brings his daughter Adeline east and leaves her with family in Missouri to make sure she receives the education he never had and to protect her from the struggle that lies ahead. But as he boards a whistling steamboat in St. Louis for a trip up the Missouri, his prospects change 
when he strikes up a conversation with a passenger. How far are you taking her? I am leading an expedition through the Rocky Mountains. You ever been to the mountains, sir? It's a far piece. It'll probably take you where you want to go. Well met, sir. John C. Fremont. Kit Carson. John C. Fremont is an American military lieutenant and an explorer who's about to embark on an expedition to survey and map the American West. And he has yet to hire a guide. Although Fremont has his doubts, he hires Carson on the spot. Carson and Fremont were kind of an odd couple from the start. Fremont is quite well-educated, a very flamboyant guy. Carson, on the other hand, is unassuming, has this wry sense of humor. The boy's gonna make it. He's always giving someone else the credit. Fremont and Carson blaze an overland route to the Pacific, a route that has already been discovered. Carson, join me with the flag. But it's virtually unused by anyone except mountain men and Indians. Look at all that out there, as far as I can see. By May of 1846, the soon-to-be-called Oregon Trail is completed. Here's Sherry Monahan, president of the Western Writers of America. They were the first people to figure out where they could ford rivers, what was the safest route where you didn't have to climb mountains, and they were the ones that led all of the pioneers out to populate and tame the Wild West. Dubbed the Pathfinder, Fremont's name reaches Lewis and Clark's status, and Carson's heroics become American legend. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson. You're listening to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and he's one of our best storytellers in this country. More on the life of Kit Carson after these messages. One of the things that Carson did during one of the expeditions with Fremont was they encountered some uh, Hispanic uh, wayfarers who had had their horses stolen from them. The New Mexicans have been attacked by Indians, and uh, the kind of mindset of the frontiersman was that you didn't allow this kind of behavior to go on, that you had to make a statement. Rather spontaneously, Carson decides to pursue these Indian horse thieves. The Indians were a large group, but nevertheless, Carson and his companion snuck up on the band, killed several of them, retrieved all the horses, brought back the horses and several Indian scalps to Fremont's camp. This really impressed Fremont, Carson risking his life for a complete stranger. 
In August 1844, Fremont has his expedition reports bound and published on nearly every page. He lavishes praise upon his fearless scout. Carson became a great romantic figure as an explorer, as a guide, as a frontiersman, as an Indian fighter. In these books that were supposed to be reports, they were actually grand adventure tales. These books were bestsellers in their day and were used as handbooks by hundreds of thousands of people going west. Here's American West historian Sally Denton. Immigrants would be in their wagons holding that and it would say, this is where you're gonna find fresh water. This is where there's going to be grass where you can graze your cattle. It was really uh, the first uh, map of its kind in America. But following the unlikely pattern of his life, Carson's mission to map the Western territories is about to take on even greater significance. An unexpected dispatch arrives from the White House. It's from President Polk and the Secretary of War. President Polk is determined to push America's western border all the way to the Pacific. California, it says we are to continue our fine work in the West. Carson and Fremont's exploratory expedition has just become a military mission. I shall assert the right to that portion of our territory which lies beyond the Rocky Mountains. President Polk had a vision of what America should look like. He wanted all of it. And he vowed that he would get it all, either by purchasing or, or by war, within one term. This is the execution of Thomas Jefferson's vision for continent-wide expansion. And the term Manifest Destiny is coined 42 years after Jefferson acquired the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon in 1803. On April 25th, 1846, Mexican cavalry attacks a group of U.S. soldiers. 18 days later, Congress declares war on Mexico. It's the beginning of the Mexican War. Navy warships close in on the California coast, and Army troops advance from the east. Fremont and Carson arrive in California, and there in Northern California, they support the Bear Flaggers in the Bear Flaggers' capture of Sonoma. As a reward for his valuable service, Carson rides to Washington, D.C. with a thick packet of sealed letters to deliver the good news to President Polk. But on his way, a greater duty redirects his path. Here's American frontier historian Derwood Ball. Kit Carson ran into uh, Stephen Watts Kearney leading first United States dragoons overland from Santa Fe to help finish the uh, conquest of California. Whoa. You're going back to the West Coast. Kearney ordered me to join him as his guide. I'd done so. He made me believe he had the right to order me. Kit now leads General Stephen Kearney and 300 of his cavalry troopers to California. 
And one of those cavalry troopers happens to be the son of the famous Sacagawea. Carney also has a direct connection to the Lewis and Clark expedition. He is married to the daughter of William Clark. Now, before they get to California, they discover from some Mexicans they captured near the Arizona-California border that there's a revolt going on in California against American rule. In December of 1846, Kearney orders an attack at Mule Hill in San Pasquale, some 35 miles north of San Diego. But his weary men and exhausted mules that they're riding are outnumbered by well-trained Mexican lancers on fine horses. The Americans are trapped on Mule Hill with no cover and dwindling supplies. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Don't take the shot unless you got it. It's a desperate situation. They've run out of food. The only thing they have to eat are the mules. And the only reinforcements are about 30 miles away in San Diego. Despite all this, in the finest tradition of the U.S. Cavalry, Kearney orders a charge. The battle that erupts is known as the Battle of San Pasquale. And Carson is in the thick of it from beginning to end. By the end of the second day, Kearney has lost 18 men and a dozen others, including Kearney himself, have been wounded. Kearney's last hope is to send a messenger on foot through enemy lines to get help from Marines and sailors in San Diego. Carson. We need supplies. I'll take care. Without hesitation, Kit Carson follows orders once again. When darkness falls, Carson, an Indian scout, and a Lieutenant Edward Beale begin their journey. Just before dawn, the three split up to avoid detection. We need to get barefoot. Before dawn, the three men begin their journey, but they begin it by creeping and crawling for several miles through enemy lines. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. I had to crawl about two miles. And having had the misfortune to lose our shoes, we had to travel barefooted in a country covered with prickly pear and rocks. And then they split up and take three different routes, about 30 miles each, to San Diego. I need to speak with the commander of this outpost immediately. Within hours, Commodore Stockton sends a force of 200 Marines and sailors to San Pasquale. And the Mexican army, seeing them come, gallops away. Kit stays behind, unable to walk for a week because of the condition of his feet. A year later, the U.S. concludes the Mexican War and, through the Mexican Cession, acquires another 500,000 square miles of territory, adding some 20-25% more territory to the United States. And now the United States 
truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest Destiny is now a reality. And when we come back, the final segment in this epic story of Kit Carson. continue with the final segment of the life of Kit Carson. Kit Carson went to the West for the freedom and openness to escape from the constraints of society back home, back in the States. But then, of course, he brought it all with him. The dream of a continental nation has been met, and America stretches from sea to sea. The West is transformed and he sees it all, but he's also one of the major instruments that brings about that change. Carson is once again dispatched to Washington, D.C. He arrives at St. Louis and then catches a train to deliver Fremont's field reports to President Polk in May of 1847, some three months after his departure. Washington, D.C. at the time of Kit Carson's arrival was becoming much more sophisticated. And just imagine this man who had been living most of his life out on the frontier has got to come back to this society. He had to be very uncomfortable. Off the trail, Kit is a shy, unassuming man, content to keep to himself. But in Washington, his celebrity is overwhelming thanks to his real-life heroics and some 70 Kit Carson dime novels that are consumed by Americans from coast to coast. Everyone wants to meet Kit Carson, and that's because Kit Carson is the very living, breathing symbol of the American frontier and of our expansion westward. And, of course, everyone wants to hear from his lips what the opportunities are for America in the West. The runaway apprentice has come a long ways. Carson's married three times and fathers ten children. His first two wives are Indian squaws, but his third wife is a beautiful, slender, 14-year-old Mexican girl named Josefa. She is 18 years his junior. Carson converts to Catholicism, and the two are married in 1843 in the Taos Parish Church. Carson thinks he might spend his remaining years as a peaceful family man. No such luck. 
The wave of migration continues to surge west. Clashes between settlers and Indians escalate into what becomes known as the Indian Wars. We come from the Santa Fe Trail. There's a woman and child, they're both missing. Would you help us? Duty calls Kit Carson once again. A Missouri trader named James White is headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his wife, Anne, and infant daughter. When their party is attacked by Apache Indians, James is killed, and the infant and the wife, Anne, are taken captive. Carson is alert, but if there's a story to be read on the ground, there's no better man to do it. The formative experience for Kit Carson was when he worked as a, a mountain man. His ability to track animals then became a very important asset in his ability to track human beings. It's them. Finally, late on the 12th day, Carson sees plumes of smoke curling skyward in the distance. There's no time to lose. Yeah. Yeah. When Carson discovers the Apache camp, he finds Ann White dead, lying on her back with a steel-tipped arrowhead daubed with rattlesnake blood struck through her heart. She's still warm. Couldn't have been dead more than five minutes. She has been horribly abused, covered with bruises and lacerations. And she's also been gang raped day after day by her Apache captors. Carson finds something else. Here's a quote from his autobiography. We found a book in camp in which I was represented as a, a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. Mrs. White must have read it, knowing that I lived nearby, must have prayed for my appearance in order that she might be saved. Ann White's infant is never found, and the incident haunts Carson until the day he dies. The way that you wander is the way that you choose. Sunshine or thunder A man will always wonder where the fair wind But the whites are just a drop in the ocean among the tidal wave of travelers rolling westward, a wave that can be traced back to the discovery of gold in California, news of which Kit Carson carried on one of his courier missions back east. In 1849 alone, some 100,000 Americans have set out for California, and the numbers will only increase. Carson was so effective in fighting the Indians and in making peace with them, that by 1853, his appointed Indian agent to the Utes, a band New Mexican officials brand the most difficult to manage in the territory. The Utes were a very special tribe to Kit Carson. He absolutely loved them. He rode with them, uh, he hunted with them, he knew them quite well. When the Civil War erupts in 1861, Carson resigns as an Indian agent and joins the Union as a colonel of the New Mexico Volunteers. He commands two battalions 
at the Battle of Valverde in 1862, which slows the Confederates from an advance up the Rio Grande Valley. Now, the Apache and Navajo take advantage of the Civil War and renew their raids in New Mexico. Over the previous year alone, more than 30,000 sheep have been stolen and uh, some 300 people killed by the Indians. Carson leads expeditions against both tribes. Carson lived in New Mexico his entire adult life, and public enemy number one was the Navajo. Everybody in New Mexico, every Hispanic person, had some friend or family member who had been killed by the Navajo or had been stolen by the Navajo. And I think he thought a reservation on the Pecos was as good as any that had been put forward as to how to end this cycle of violence. The campaign against the Navajo ends with the removal of 9,000 tribe members to a reservation in New Mexico. The Navajo call the removal the Long Walk and about 200 of them die on the journey. The 53-year-old Carson rides in the vanguard along with some of his favorite Ute warriors who are longtime bitter enemies of the Navajo. Carson doesn't like clearing out the Navajo, but the alternative is to ignore their raids in the midst of the Civil War. Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning Indian novelist in Scott Mamaday. He knew the Indians. He had known them from an early time as a mountain man. He probably knew Indians better than any other white man of his time. He knew what uh, they would stand and how they could be brought to terms with the army. And, uh, you know, he didn't hesitate, I think, to, to act on the basis of his knowledge. Before the Civil War ends, Carson is promoted to Brigadier General. Following the war, Carson returns to his family, but duty keeps calling. In 1868, with chest pain so bad he could hardly breathe, Carson brings a delegation of Ute chiefs to Washington to negotiate a treaty, establishing a permanent reservation on the very ground the tribe claims as its own. Here he is, this Indian fighter, known for his various campaigns. And yet, he was also a peacemaker and a diplomat. I think the trick to understanding Carson is to go back to that idea that, for him, there was no such thing as, as the American Indian. He sided with certain groups, and other groups were his enemy throughout his life. Shortly after Carson returns home, his wife, Wasifa, gives birth to their eighth child. But complications set in, and within two weeks, his wife dies, and he's holding her in his arms. Then, just one month later, on the afternoon of May 23, 1868, Carson's aortic aneurysm ruptures, <coughs> calls out suddenly from his pallet of buffalo robes on the floor. Kit Carson passes from life into legend. And great job to the whole team, and thank you, Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Harriman, 
and vigilantes. And thank you also to Mr. Phil Anschutz and his terrific book. By the way, get it if you can. Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2. So many great stories. We're going to get to a bunch of them. Thomas Jefferson, who starts it all. Of course, Tecumseh, Chief Red Cloud, Brigham Young, Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Mark Twain. Those stories coming up over the next weeks and months here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger. And this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and father. I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs, but it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant, either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. 
He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language, that trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed his number one duty to me to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. 
I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity, not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we love telling stories about everything here on the show. And that's the arts, and that's history, and that's sports. And this one's just, well, it's the most epic road trip ever. And it's the story of Lewis and Clark. And we've been following their journey and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure, opening up and exploring the American West. It's a heck of a story. Stephen Ambrose started this story and we're taking it home. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our 21st feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. They have a problem with food. One of the problems of uh, a population center of about 4,000 of Mandan and Hidatsa living in semi-permanent villages is that they hunt out the animals in the region. We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor, of the Lewis and Clark periodical, we proceeded on. A more nomadic people like the Crow or the Lakota will just follow the herds or move wherever they have to. But the Mandan and Hidatsa are essentially sedentary, and so it doesn't take very long for them to, to clear out whatever animals are in the vicinity. It became a concern that they might not have enough food to get through the winter. So they start to think about how to supplement their food supply beyond the perimeter of these villages and Clark then decides to lead a hunting party down river and he will go as far as he needs to go in order to secure a food supply and nobody knows how far he's going to have to go. Clark takes a group of men, uh, leaves Lewis in charge of the fort and Clark winds up eventually going as far as the Cannonball River so they go upwards of 80, 90 miles, maybe even 100 miles away from Fort Mandan to secure their meat supply. Meanwhile, he leaves Lewis in charge back at Fort Mandan, so Lewis takes up his diary. No buffalo have made their appearance in our neighborhood for some weeks, and I am informed that our Indian neighbors suffer extremely at this moment for the article of flesh. Lewis typically is not writing if Clark is, certainly in the first year of travel. And so one of the few sustained diaries we have is Lewis during that 10-day period that Clark is gone. And the diaries that Lewis wrote during that period are a priceless document. Especially his writing about Chicago Wea, who they still didn't refer to by name, giving birth. 11th February, Monday. 1805, 
It is worthy of remark that this was the first child which this woman had borne. And, as is common in such cases, her labor was tedious and the pain violent. And Lewis was called in to do what he could. It was a difficult birthing. Uh, she was in a great deal of pain. The labor was sustained and people were really worried about her. And so Lewis sort of, I don't think he ever actually attended to her personally, but he's consulted and he does what little he can. Uh, and there's a great moment of uh, historical irony when René Jassome, the kind of rascally translator, interpreter for the Mandan, tells Lewis, Mr. Jesum informed me that he had frequently administered a small portion of the rattle of the rattlesnake, which, he assured me, had never failed to produce the desired effect, that of hastening the birth of the child. And Lewis, as an enlightenment guy, scoffs at this, but does happen to have some rattle. Having the rattle of the snake by me, I gave it to him, and he administered two rings of it to the woman, broken in small pieces with fingers, and added to a small quantity of water. And a short time after she ingests this potion, she does give birth, and so Lewis says, well, whether this medicine was truly the cause or not, I shall not undertake to determine. But I was informed that she had not taken it more than 10 minutes before she brought forth. Perhaps this remedy may be worthy of future experiments, but I must confess that I want faith as to its efficacy. So he's, he's a skeptic, as he should be. You know, he knows that rattlesnake is not really very different from fingernails on a human or claws on an animal, and so he has very severe doubts about whether this was actually useful. But he understands the possibility of the placebo effect. And what, what I think is so remarkable about him is he doesn't just dismiss this and say, oh, you know, superstitious native peoples, they know nothing, they have no science. Uh, this is exactly what you would expect from people in a state of barbarism. He does write to Jefferson in his letter at the end of the Mandan winter. He says, we need to look into this. This shows Lewis at his very best. Back to William Clark's Hunt for Food in the Wild, where he's without much in the way of protection. He can't take everybody with him. Uh, so he takes a shakedown group of about a dozen, and every step they take away from Fort Mandan, they're not only leaving behind the full force of the expedition, including its blunderbusses and its cannons, and the breastworks of the fort, but they're getting deeper into Lakota territory. Lakotas of the same Sioux tribe who they almost went to bloodshed with when they refused to leave the Corps' boats. The Lakota are in a kind of imperial expansion phase of their tribal destiny, and they were still angry about the famous encounter, and they had threatened reprisal. So now Clark is putting them himself and his men in a very difficult position when they get that far away from the protection of the fort. And one of the journalers, Joseph Whitehouse, will describe for us just how difficult it would be. There was a warpath. And the Lakota pounced. The savages rushed out of this piece of woods and ran towards our four men, whooping, shouting as they came. 
they roughed up some men and they tried to steal some horses and they wound up, I think, getting some meat. There being near 120 of those savages, they then surrounded our men. It's an amazing scene. This detachment is encamped and the Lakota have probably been watching them. The Lakota Sioux Nation, hidden in place, waiting to plunder and murder. Native peoples were much better at reconnaissance because it was their territory and they knew all of the coolies and the rills and the ridges and bluffs and the bends in the river. And so probably they've been thinking about this for some time. And so when this happened, uh, it's clear that there was a, a shouting match where everyone's bewildered because the white people can't speak Lakota, the Lakota can't speak English. Everyone realizes this is a moment of great danger. The tension must have just been unbearable. Probably lots of people on both sides want to start shooting. Then they formed a half circle and held a consultation, the rest of which was that they, we Americans, should be murdered. This could easily have led to the slaughter of all of Lewis and Clark's men. If they survived, they would have survived either by taking heavy losses or by inflicting heavy losses on the Lakota. It would have changed the entire tenor of the expedition. Jefferson had gone out of his way to say, err on the side of peace and harmony and reconciliation. If you have to turn back, do. But don't get yourself into a kind of head-on-head conflict with, with any Native peoples. And so here was probably the moment of greatest danger to the expedition. And what we sense from the journals is that the Lakota had a pretty severe debate amongst themselves about what exactly was the right thing to do. And somebody amongst the raiding party said, no, we, we had better not kill them. Two of their warriors opposed them and would not agree to it being done. We can rough them up a little and we can steal some of their stuff but it probably would be a very serious mistake to do them actual severe bodily harm. You know, who knows what that would mean, and so they backed away a little. The savages then set the men at liberty. But they could easily have seen this through to a kind of a massacre, and, and Clark's men are trying to understand what's going on. They can't possibly really know what's going on, except that there's a heated debate amongst the raiders, and they're in a very vulnerable position. They are very sure of their capacity with their rifles, but they probably didn't have everything prepared because this happened when they least expected it. And I think they knew that the sheer numbers of the Lakota who were either on the site or nearby was such that if they started a shooting match, they were going to take severe losses. And when we return, we continue with Clay Jenkinson, and the most epic road trip ever. What happens next with Lewis and Clark? Hold on and we'll be right back.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And when we left off, William Clark's hunting party had just been robbed by Lakota Sioux Indians. The party that was robbed by the Indians returned to the fort at 12 o'clock the same night. They were very much fatigued. They immediately on their arrival gave information to our officers. When the news gets back to the fort, uh, Lewis immediately decides that now is the time to send out a reprisal party. Immediately called for 20 volunteers to go off early in the morning in pursuit of those robbers. He goes through a lot of huff and puff over this. 20 immediately volunteered their service gets the men ready and they march around and get their guns ready and they cross the river to the Mandans and they're set to go on a, on a very serious uh, joint command, Mandans and, um, and the U.S. troops to go chastise the Lakota. And the Mandan people's view is, you know, it's really cold and they're a long way away by now and these things can wait, we'll regroup in the spring. Let's not overreact here. And in fact, the Mandan were more freaked out by the show of force that Lewis and Clark brought to their village than they were by the Sioux. These, these raids were so common at this time. So this is what Indian warfare was. You know, to use the word warfare is really a kind of a misnomer. So you know, eight young men from the Lakota go out with an older, wiser, experienced man, and they go raiding horses at another tribe. And, Maybe they get the horses and maybe they don't. Uh, maybe they get the horses and then the tribe gets them back the next day. Maybe they kill a couple of people. Uh, maybe they wound somebody. Maybe some of themselves are wounded. But the numbers of, of, of wounded or dead are very small, two, three, five, something like that. Occasionally, in Native American warfare, there would be a, a, a larger battle, which led to lots of casualties. But typically, a, a, a quote-unquote battle is a skirmish by our standards. It's really more like Grand Theft Auto uh, or gang warfare, and a few are killed, and then everybody regroups and goes back and plots revenge. And then the, if, if the Mandan goes steal Lakota horses and get away with it, then the following year the Lakota come and, and take six Mandan women or kill four people and, and get their horses back or steal more horses. And this goes back and forth and back and forth. And when Lewis and Clark saw this, they were carrying Jefferson's peace message, you know, convince all the native peoples to live in peace with each other and to live under the security umbrella of the United States government and trade will be the great civilizing force. And so all you need to do is to convince them that they should stop this sort of bad habit of these, of these wars and raids. And so Lewis and Clark dutifully, wherever they go, give this speech. But the native peoples appear to have listened politely and even nodded occasionally. But then once Lewis and Clark left, they sort of shrugged their shoulders and went back to the lifeway that had been established among them for decades, maybe for centuries. And so what happened with the hunters is a very typical moment where there's a lot of shouting and shoving, but not much bloodshed. And then Lewis, who's wanted to do something about the Lakota ever since the incident at the mouth of the Bad River in South Dakota now has his opportunity. The Mandan are just shaking their heads and saying the huff and puff of these white folks is out of proportion to the crime committed. Nobody got killed. You lost a little meat. Uh, 
we could probably settle this sometime later. And so this is, again, one of those moments that I always look for in the journals of where the tables get turned, where the white people normally look on the native peoples as barbarous savages with primitive and loathsome customs that make no sense to enlightened people. And they judge them for this, of course. That's what we do. But occasionally, even through the eyes of Lewis Clark, we see the tables turned and the native peoples look on Lewis and Clark with a kind of bewilderment. What, they whip their men? What, they eat dog? You know, so many times the native peoples were as bewildered by Lewis and Clark as Lewis and Clark were by them, and they were as quick to judge what, from their cultural point of view, was barbarism and savagery as Lewis and Clark were willing to judge when they saw things that upset them, like a Mandan woman mourning by cutting off the tip of her little finger or something. But with or without the full-throated support of the Mandan Indians, Meriwether Lewis was going to go after these Lakota Sioux. Captain Lewis halted his men at this place and sent out a spy to find if any Indians were to be seen. The spy returned in a short time and informed Captain Lewis that he had perceived a smoke on the opposite side of the river. The captain and party immediately crossed the Missouri. On landing, the men were formed in two divisions, the captain taking the command of the right wing. In the left wing, he gave the command of two of our sergeants, who was ordered to march in to be able to surround the fire from whence the smoke issued. Captain Lewis gave the orders to the sergeant that on hearing the sound of a horn, the left wing would join the right with all speed possible. This is good military leadership. I mean, they, the officers had been well trained. They knew exactly how to do this. Both parties then advanced towards where the smoke was and perceived the fire and found that those savages were gone. They've just disappeared. They burnt the huts and meat that Captain Clark had left at that place. Captain Lewis and his party proceeded on their pursuit this day, but without success. They probably had scouts out that knew exactly where Lewis's men were. Uh, Lewis makes the common uh, misassumption of, of, of white people that, that Indians are more sedentary than they in fact are. The capacity of Native peoples to move and move fast on a moment's notice is one of the most extraordinary uh, dynamics of, of, of the conquest of the American West. And so Lewis doesn't quite understand the mobility of, of the Lakota, and Lewis and Clark are on borrowed horses to the extent that they have them at all in a country where the Lakota, who are a brilliant natural horse culture, uh, who have taken to the horse the way white people in the 20th century took to the automobile are infinitely superior to them. And so there's, from our point of view, there's a kind of a farcical element. We see the overreaction of Lewis. We see the uh, the bewilderment and even the fear of the Mandan in, in the face of this. Uh, we see the increased mobility of the native peoples and the sluggishness, the logistical sluggishness of the white people. It, it strikes us as amusing, but of course it wasn't amusing to Lewis and Clark, they were angry. I think they were frightened. They realized how vulnerable they were. Lewis probably thought he had made a mistake in sending out the hunting party without more security to protect them. This could easily have been a, not just a, a debacle for the expedition itself, but a huge setback 
in Jefferson's peace policy in the American West. And so I think that, that Lewis is overreacting in part because he's upset with himself for having let this happen. My final thought is, this was a Saturday when they tried to seek retribution. There was no such thing as a weekend for these guys. And great job as always, Alex. And thanks as always to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. What a storyteller. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. And by the way, you can learn about all we do. Listen to all of the epic road trip stories at OurAmericanNetwork.org. By the way, Clay is also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. Alex and I both are graduates of Jefferson School. Alex at the undergrad level, and I went to law school there. And if you've ever gotten a chance to go to Charlottesville, My goodness, do it. See Monticello and see James Madison's birthplace and see the most beautiful campus ever designed in America. This is Lee Habib, the most epic road trip ever. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time to hear the story of one of the more unusual figures in American history. While you seldom hear his name nowadays, he was a big deal during the late 60s and early 70s. Here's Jesse with the story of Tiny Tim. saw Tiny Tim on television while growing up in the 80s. Captured my attention right away. What the heck was I watching? A grown man playing the ukulele singing like a cartoon character with a terrifying physical appearance and strange demeanor. Think Marilyn Manson meets Jackie Mason. I'm not trying to be mean, just descriptive. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Now, hearing this music today, someone who isn't familiar with Tiny Tim might think that this was all just one big joke. But Tiny Tim wasn't a joke. Most people thought of him as a novelty comedy act. But the thing is, Tiny Tim wasn't really an act. Now, here's the speaking voice of Tiny Tim. You're going to notice a bit of a difference from his singing voice. Melody, in my opinion, is 99% of all songs. Words are just 1%. A great melody is what really counts, whether it's today or 50 years ago, any of the Beatles songs. You know, the Beatles had one thing in common 
with Irving Berlin and all the other writers like the Gershwins, they knew how they had a great knack of, of what hit songs sounded like. You take mostly any of their songs from Norwegian Wood to uh, I Saw Standing There to uh, Love Me Do. Every one of these songs can be remembered. They just had a knack of writing hit songs. In April of 1932, he was born Herbert Buckingham Carey in Manhattan. His mother, a Polish Jew. His father, a Lebanese Catholic. Tiny Tim displayed musical talent at a very young age. At five years old, his father gave him a vintage wind-up gramophone and a 78 RPM record of Beautiful Ohio by Henry Burke. Long, long ago, someone I know had a little red canoe. Tiny Tim would sit for hours listening to this record. At the age of six, he began teaching himself to play guitar. By his preteen years, he developed a passion for records, specifically those from the 1900s through the 1930s. He began spending most of his free time at the New York Public Library reading about the history of the phonograph industry and its first recording artists. He would research sheet music, often making copies to take home to learn a hobby he continued for his entire life. The New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, I don't know if any one of your listeners know this, it's available, they have over 7 million songs. And with the original sheet music co- uh, you know, cover going back to the 1800s in large bound volumes. Mm-hmm. Some of them are microfilm now, and they can be, they can be Xerox only with the publisher's permission but, uh, after 1905. Mm-hmm. But before 1905, you can Xerox them. Uh, And I found, just looking through the history of this country, as well as the hit songs at that time, which is simply amazing. Here's a song. Thanks, I picked... Thanks, Mr. Bailey. I I picked a song up last year in the library. The sheet music was faded and torn. And I was just fortunate to be able to Xerox this Mm -hmm. because it was 1905, and they don't let you do anything after that year Mm -hmm. unless you get the publisher's permission. But here's a song that... um, was written at the time the subways were first being built in Chicago and in New York, the first underground subways. I hope it wasn't. Down in the subways, oh, what a place. Under the Isle of Manhattan, speeding through space, just place for swooning all the season round way down way down in the subway we underneath the ground at 11 years old tiny tim began learning how to play the violin and the mandolin soon moving on to what would be considered his signature instrument the ukulele After dropping out of high school, he worked a series of menial jobs before he discovered his ability to sing in an upper register. Something of a new revelation. I never knew that I had a higher top register. And one day I heard Rudy Valley sing, and uh, I said, gee, look how high he hits those notes. I consider this a gift of the Lord, uh, an undisclosed gift. By the early 1950s, he had landed a job as a messenger at the New York office of MGM Studios, where he became ever more fascinated with the entertainment industry. Tiny Tim started by performing at dance club amateur nights under different names such as Texarkana Tex, Judas K. Foxglove, Vernon Castle, and Emmett Swink. Oh, animal crackers in my soup. My 
out from the crowd of performers, Tiny Tim would wear crazy outfits. And after seeing an old poster of a long-haired Rudolph Valentino, Tiny Tim grew his own hair out to shoulder length and wore pasty white facial makeup. His mother didn't understand his change in appearance and was intending to take her son, now in his 20s, to see a psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital until his father stepped in. You see, back in the day, if your mom took you to Bellevue, you were pretty much certified crazy. She left me with the herpes. Now why did she do that? Last night I sat upon a chair and gave it to the cat. The cat gave it to Rover and to the mousie too. The mousie gave it to the bird. I don't know what to do. Thank God his dad intervened. By 1968, his first album, God Bless Tiny Tim, was released. It contained an orchestrated version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips, which became a hit after being released as a single. Now, for most of the album, Tiny Tim sings in his unusual falsetto style. However, on a number of songs like this hilarious rendition of Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, he sings both baritone and falsetto, alternating between the two. Because you've all been so sweet, another duet for you. They say we're young and we don't know Won't find out until we grow Well, I don't know, I guess it's true Cause you got me, baby, I got you Funny thing is, he almost sounds just like Cher I got you, babe I got you, babe Just a year later, in 1969, Tiny Tim was now a household name on three continents when he appeared with Bing Crosby on live television from the Hollywood Palace. We'll have a little game here. I'll sing a bit of a song, and you tell me uh, what picture it was from, and then you have to sing another song from the same picture. Now, sit down. This will take a little thought. You ready? Thanks, Mr. Bing. That'd be great. I'll sing a song. You tell me what picture, and then you sing a song the same. Down the old ox road, though you'll never know where it is by looking at maps. Oh, gee, that's easy. What's that? That's, the year was 1933. True. The picture was College Humor. Right. And from that picture, you also sang, Learn to croon. You'll eliminate each rival soon. If you're heading for a sunny honeymoon, learn to croon. Or you could throw a Labrador through that that vibrato of yours. Tiny Tim was now just about as famous as you can get. That same year, he married his third wife, Vicky, on the set of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in front of 40 million viewers. Here's stage magician and comedian Penn Jillette on why Tiny Tim matters to him. Tiny Tim matters to me because he is the antithesis of all that is cynical in the uh, American culture. There was this time... You know, this time in the late 60s when all of America decided to embrace, whether with a wink or whether without a wink, someone who was truly different, who was truly eccentric. And all the people that have reason to be cynical, um, Lenny Bruce, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Johnny Carson, Bing Crosby, Howard Stern, 
um, they all melted in front of Tiny Tim. Bob Dylan uh, seemed to think he was the only real person that uh, Bob Dylan ever met. Bob Dylan met a lot of people. On September 28, 1996, Tiny Tim suffered a heart attack just as he began singing at a ukulele festival in Montauk, Massachusetts. He was hospitalized for three weeks before being discharged and told never to play again on stage. Tiny Tim ignored the advice. On November 30th of 1996, he was playing at a gala benefit hosted by the Women's Club of Minneapolis. While performing his last number of the evening, he suffered another heart attack on stage in the middle of a rendition of his hit, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. When he collapsed and never regained consciousness, Tiny Tim was pronounced dead nearly an hour later. And that is the story of Tiny Tim. Never hit your grandma with a shovel. It makes a bad impression on her mind. One of a kind. Unabashedly himself. Strange. American. This is Our American Story. All I want is 50 million dollars. And great job on that, Jesse. And if you can, go to YouTube, Google Tiny Tim and Johnny Carson, and you'll understand what Penn Jillette was saying. Tiny Tim's story here on Our American Stories. And we're living in the magic of gold.